From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiatakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Thanks for being with us. You know that thing that happens where you turn a corner in L.A. and suddenly you're in the middle of a photo shoot? The Walt Disney Concert Hall downtown, the magic of brand marketing is happening with lights, cameras, models. If we can get a shot of him just flying over. Then one of the models decides to perch high up on a wall and won't come down until he gets something to eat. Because I think it's unfair to make him fly three or four times without getting a little bit of food. And so Adam Baz is like the agent for Jasper and three other birds. He's a falconer whose client goes from posing for the camera to scaring away pigeons and crows all around town. You just got to feed him. It's a busy life, but it's L.A. Everyone's hustling, even the birds. Reporter Brandon R. Reynolds spent a couple of days with Baz to see what life is like for an urban falconer and his hungry charges. Oh, he's such a model. It is a little daunting when he's flying straight at you. The trick for Riley, the human model, is to hold her gloved hand in a way that looks stylish, but that'll also offer a perch for Jasper to land on. These concepts aren't necessarily compatible. But then hold it more out to the side, not like an elegant over the head, because he's just not used to that. What drives us to chase these weird careers? Well, you know, money, exposure, adoration, and if you're a bird of prey, treats. This is just the deep freezer of death here, so, you know, it's a, ba a grab bag of squirrels and rats and mice, rabbit, quail. Baz starts a day of falconry by cutting up small frozen animals into bite-sized bits. These mouse heads and whatnot are the currency he uses to pay his birds, who are not quite employees and not quite pets, but something else entirely. This is whole quail and mice just cut up into small pieces. This small animal chop shop is inside Baz's tasteful house in Lincoln Heights, at the top of a treacherously steep, overgrown road that looks like where a killer might live, which several do. So everybody's going to be pretty talkative here because it's, they know it's feeding time and flying time. He lives up here with his girlfriend, two goats, and a very sweet but understandably nervous dog. And then there are the four birds, none of which are falcons, by the way. There's a young barn owl named Archie, two Harris's hawks, Jasper and Fox, and, well, then there's Kanoni. She's a large East African hawk called an auger buzzard. She's mostly dark gray on her head and back, and white all down the front. Very large, very regal, very intimidating. Kanoni imprinted on Baz when she was young, which means they have a special kind of bond. I got her at a really young age, so she sees me as kind of somewhere, floating somewhere in between her parent and her mate. And does that cause awkwardness with your girlfriend? A little bit. She's not a huge fan of my girlfriend. So you might infer that there's something emotional or even spiritual going on between Baz and these awe-inspiring birds. But as we drive to one of Jasper's gigs, Baz says no. And, you know, they trust me and they're comfortable with me and they're happy with me. Don't get me wrong, but they don't love me. You know, they're not flying to me because it just feels really good inside when they land next to me. You know, they're flying to me because they're hungry and I have food and they can rely on me for that. You know, humans have a unique tendency to project our own kind of feelings and emotions onto our animals. Um, I mean, I even wonder at times if my dog loves me, you know? 
I don't know. What is love? How do you define love biologically? I'm not 100% sure she does, but... I saw the way she looked at you. I think she'll know. She does love me, but the birds sweet. certainly don't. Instead, he maintains his relationship with Jasper and the other birds using a digital scale. He weighs the birds before every flight. If they're too full, they just won't work for him. He's figured out how to control wildness, down to the gram. But what motivates Adam Baz is harder to figure out. I mean, there aren't many falconers in L.A. It's not a very hospitable place to do falconry. So I To legally own falcons or hawks in California, you need a whole series of state and federal licenses. And also, there's a test where you have to know the crazy medieval names for all the falconry gear. But that said, there are 550 registered falconers in California alone. Most people, though, they just use the birds for hunting. The company Baz runs is called Hawk on Hand. Along with modeling jobs, Baz has a regular educational meet-the-birds type experience in Ernest Debs well, Park. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Have any of you guys done a falconry lesson or anything like this before? <laughs> no, right after the photo shoot wraps, we hustle to the park to meet four bird enthusiasts from Orange County. Baz gives a little lecture and answers questions. I have three birds for you to meet. Uh, one of them is currently... Falconry is a 5,000-year-old form of hunting. And, I regret to report, he tells them the terrible truth about owls. Owls are not very smart. Um, they're very kind of like instinctual, primitive, almost reptilian animals. But super sweet. Very cute. Okay, Archie. It does this. So this is Archie. As he takes them out of their carriers one after another, it's like those unboxing videos on YouTube. Except sometimes the boxes bounce around as the birds, and here I'm talking about mainly Archie the owl, get excited about flying and about eating, of course. This is all a unique and fun experience for us tourists to the world of raptors. But for Baz, it's also a way of sharpening the bird's training for the real moneymaker of his business, bird abatement. The next day, right at sunset, we're in Palmdale. The city has hired him to control their raven problem. Hundreds of them are roosting in a park next to City Hall. That means poop and noise. But introduce a hawk or two and ravens and crows will leave because they don't want to be around birds of prey. And the hawks, they don't usually kill the other birds, but they do get the message. She's a veteran of the crow and, and raven chasing world. So what we'll do is we'll just get him. I'm gonna put him on the van here. Okay. As soon as Jasper appears with his little bell, the ravens all go nuts. And so now every raven in this park is acutely aware of the fact that he's here, even though he's not actively pursuing them. Jasper is kind of creating a hostile work environment for the ravens, who just want a relaxing place to spend the winter. At a certain point, and we don't really know how or why this happens, but you know, one of them will give a cue and they'll just retreat. And then it'll be just quiet for the rest of the night, usually. After a few minutes, like magic, the park is cleared. But since the ravens will come back eventually, Baz, or one of the falconers who works with them, has to visit these sites every now and again and fly his birds around. One of the cool things about ravens and crows is that they actually pass information between generations. And so these birds will remember this process for a long time. And eventually, we hope that every month and every year, we'll see less and less of them. The relationship between predator and prey is as much a part of LA's nature as the ancient ritual of fashion shoots and high-maintenance beauties with weird diets. That's what drives all the hustling in this city. Maybe it's not love, but it's definitely hunger. For KCRW, this is Brandon R. Reynolds, just trying to roost somewhere for the night.
Meet a music producer who, like Jasper the Falcon you just heard about, is flying high with a slew of Grammy nominations. That's coming up on the other side of this. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. More of Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. From predacious birds dominating the food chain to songbirds dominating the charts. That's Kill Bill, the number one hit by SZA. It's up for three Grammy Awards this year. You probably know SZA. But a name you might not be so familiar with is Rob Beisel. He's the guy who engineered and mixed and co-produced and co-wrote that song. In fact, he collaborated with SZA on much of her huge hit album, S.O.S. And the result is eight Grammy nominations including the big three, Song, Record, and Album of the Year. He has another nomination for a song that he worked on with Babyface. Wow. <laughs> hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you get in with it? Like, like what, what happened to you? How did you get into this business? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, been a, it's been a sort of long, gradual process that I've been you know, chipping away at for a while. Yeah. Um, I'm 31 now, almost 32, and my first, like, studio internship was when I was 17 and uh, I've been you know recording friends since I was like 13 or 14 Um, so yeah it's just been a a long gradual uh, build-up over time right but this is like an LA story right you could say that yeah I guess it's it's sort of the classic uh, you know come to the the city of you know we're the music capital of the world here so you came to LA yeah yeah. from the bay yeah and you were like your eyes were focused right you were like this is what I want to do yeah, I mean, this has been the mission since, you know, I first started recording my, you know, friends when I was, like, 13. Um, it's been, uh, you know, I've had my eyes on the prize for, for a while here, um, and it, it's it's been really special over the last, um, you know, couple of years having things really kind of solidified for me. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing run. Nine Grammy nominations, I mean. <laughs> something like that. No, that's not something like that. That's, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's in your head, that number nine, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. And uh, you want to win all eight of them. Did you have a sense when you were working on, on the SZA album that it might turn out to be such a big I, hit? I really thought people would would enjoy listening to it. I think it's so impossible to like predict you know, chart positions or um, award nominations, but um, I really loved listening to it as we made it, and I thought that that was a good uh, north star throughout the process. You know, that if, if it's something I wanted to listen to, that maybe other people might as well. It's got a great beat. <laughs> it's a cool. It's got a cool. <laughs> I promised myself I wouldn't say that on the radio, but I just said it on the radio. It's I got a great it. beat. Thank no, you. it Thank really you. does. You started working on SOS with SZA right as the pandemic turned everything upside down, right? Very, very coincidentally, it was not like designed around the pandemic initially. No, obviously, nothing was designed around the <laughs> pandemic. It all came sort of suddenly, didn't it? Yeah, I just I connected with her like a month ish right before like January of 2020. Um, and we just happened to really hit it off. And, um, you know, when lockdown started, we just kind of locked in and made some music. At her place in Malibu. For a good chunk of it, yeah. Basically really? like the first like year, year and a half. I mean, yeah. what, was, what was that experience like? 
It was incredible. Um, it was, you know, I can think of worse places to spend the pandemic, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, it felt very like isolated from like all the the chaos of the world, which I guess you know that's kind of a something. Regardless of whether it's like a you know global epidemic or just you know the usual you know global chaos, it's you you don't want that to really as much as you can to seep into the creative process. So it, I felt like we did a good job of that. What's she like to work with? I mean, just between you and me, what's she like to work with? <laughs> She's incredible. She, I, I, I think in in music circles, um, the word genius gets thrown a lot very loosely about people, but I, I, I genuinely um, would apply that label to her. She's just, uh, you know, from another planet. You, and as we mentioned at the outset, you, you've been working as an engineer, been doing this since you were a kid, um, teenager, but, but on this one you get, producer credit as well as songwriting credit yeah yeah i mean how did that switch happen did it feel like a natural progression for you yeah definitely um i mean it's that was like the dream since when i was you know 13 i remember like i had heard of rick rubin when i was like you know 12 or 13 and um i uh remember seeing him in like a you know rolling stone magazine like riding his bike in venice in one of the pictures and i thought like man i want to i want to be like that guy someday um so that's you know i've been building towards this this type of thing for a while um and uh it's pretty uh surreal that it's finally kind of clicking in that direction i mean while you were in college you interned with an engineer famous engineer right mark needham yeah he he's uh done all sorts of incredible stuff i mean uh and he's had a, a pretty like incredibly long career too like the i mean killers fleetwood mac right and even before that he did like the the chris isaac song wicked game yeah. so he's uh he's been in uh you know a household name within the industry for a while um so i, I really soaked up a lot from him and, and owe a lot of my um success to him you mentioned rick rubin um on the bike right in yeah, venice yeah. right you 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 started working with rubin as a runner at yeah. his studio shangri-la yeah i was i started as like an intern there um and then I did the whole classic like studio ladder thing, you know, start as an intern, then runner, then assistant engineer, and then engineer. Um, so I was there from like 2014, like right out of college until, you know, 2020, like right when I stepped away to, to work with SZA. So. What's it like at Shangri-La? It's incredible. It's just... Uh, Is it as eccentric as its rep says, it's, indicates? It's, it's not far from that. Really? Um, it's it's, it's kind of like stepping into to Wonka land in some ways. It's, uh, it's, it's a special place. What about his production style? What would you say about Rick Rubin's production style? I I owe a lot of uh, you know where I'm at to to that. I, I'm I'm such a fan of his um, and the way he puts songs together and like the the way they end up sounding in the end. Um, it's just all about like putting the best and most important stuff uh, to the forefront and kind of getting rid of all the extra noise. Um, I feel like so much of how I approach music making can be linked back to to his approach too. What's next for you, Rob? Um, Seriously, what's next, Rob? I'm Beisel? trying. Sort of the mission of this year is just um, branching out, finding new artists that are um, budding and helping develop them. Um, so that's kind of been where my head's at. You know, finding like the next generations and helping them make their their own like breakthrough album. Um, not that SOS was SZA's breakthrough album, but I, I do think it helped her. Um, you know, get to another maybe several rungs up the ladder from where she was at before. Yeah, I just, you know, want to recognize talent and help them accomplish, talented artists and help them accomplish what they, they set out to do. Eight Grammy nominees. I mean, are you like pinching yourself right now? <laughs> I, I I kind of feel like, uh, 
you know, in like Looney Tunes when uh, like, you know, the roadrunner runs off a, a cliff and it's only when you look down that you start falling. So I'm trying to not like over process, <laughs> over analyze this and just kind of like keep on running in the air until, it, you know, the reality sets in here for now. Um, but just, you know, not not trying to make too much of it and just kind of go about my normal life here. You're so it's not just it's not just SZA, right? It's Babyface. Yeah, I've been it, it, it's been a good little run of things lately. Uh, my friend Chris, who's one of the producers on the song Snooze, uh, he connect he he brought me in to do some sessions with Babyface, and um, lo and behold, that became a song on uh, his album. And uh, yeah, uh, he's he's incredible. He is also you know incredibly kind, incredibly hardworking. Um, it's it, it and that seems like no coincidence to me. Uh, and he's you know lo and behold he's one of the the greatest to ever do it. Nine Grammy nominations. <laughs> Nine. You really are pinching yourself, aren't you? <laughs> you have an entourage, by the way, right? Where I mean, when you were like seventeen and doing this, like you know, you're like, oh, I'm just playing around or whatever. Did you think that's gonna be me? I had I had no clue. Uh, I really, I, yeah, I, I, I wanted to, you know accomplish a lot but I, I, I definitely exceeded my expectations um, and I'm hoping to keep keep climbing from here Rob Beisel music producer engineer up for nine Grammys this year good luck to you Rob thank you so much appreciate it thanks for having me I get the sense that it's a lost cause I get the sense that you might really love her the sex gonna be evidence the sex is evidence I try to ration with you no more there's a crime of passion but damn you was out of reach you was at the farmer's market with your perfect peach now I'm in the basement, planning on my patient. Now you laying face down, got me saying no vibe. I'm so mature, I'm so mature, I'm so mature, I got me in the best. The time it is, I don't mean I do more than I just want you. If I can't have you, no one will. I might kill my ex, not the best idea. Here's no girl for It's Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiatakis. A few weeks ago, without much fanfare, the city of Huntington Beach, among others, transferred control of more than six acres of land to local indigenous populations. The first ever land returned to tribal communities in the region and an historic moment for Orange County. A transfer of the Bolsa Chica Mesa actually happened back in July Coming out of negotiations between Huntington Beach officials and the previous landowners, our Orange County Oracle LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano is with us right now to talk about this landmark moment. Hi, Gustavo. Hola, Steve. And it is landmark for sure. Tell us a little bit about the Bolsa Chica Mesa. Where is it? So it's going to be right on the coast in Huntington Beach. So right above the Bolsa Chica wetlands, which beautiful what i think the official scientific term is like an estuary in other words this is where the river the san gabriel river and the uh also the santa Ana rivers it spreads out right into the sea so you have marshes you have wetlands obviously wetlands uh birds sea life uh, vegetation and all of that and here is this Mesa, just right above it. This is where both the Hachiman people and the Tongva people, for decades known as the Juanenos and the Gabrileños, respectively, by the, you know the, the American society, this was a site of a village for them. This was a sacred site for them for thousands of years. And obviously, after conquest, they have had very hard time even trying to get onto the land. But now it's theirs. It, it, under a conservancy, that land is now theirs. The Bolsa Chica Mesa, about six acres. So what about the political significance of this and, and the significance to the 
Orange County tribal communities. Oh, my God, this is humongous. So the Ahachaman and Tongva, they are not federally recognized tribes, and they've been trying to get official uh, uh, recognition from the American government for decades. And the Tongva people, they're more t- traditionally associated with Los Angeles County and the Juanangos more with South Orange County. But I mean, if you can't even get tribal recognition from the federal government, imagine trying to get any sort of land in Orange County, period. Now, the Ahachaman, they've been able to lease land from San Juan Capistrano for over the past couple of years. That itself was huge. But this land is now theirs. It, it is under this land trust or this conservancy. That is beyond historic. And this is especially with the Wilson Chica wetlands for decades. They've been trying to develop that. And part of this designation does come uh, because of this agreement between the California Coastal Commission, the city of Huntington Beach and the previous uh, owner of the site. They traded those six acres in order for them to trade uh, to be able to develop two acres. But still a humongous victory. I cannot overstate it. And I know I overstate a lot of things. What what stopped the original landowners from developing there in the first place? The mighty California Coastal Commission. And now I say this sarcastically because we know how hard it is to develop land on the coast in California, not just Orange County, but all of California. Of course, in Orange County, it has always been very, very contentious because Orange County, it's build, build, build. And I remember, geez. This was maybe a decade ago, maybe a little bit more, but as they were doing development, they were going to develop this land, and as they're digging stuff up, they're finding remains, they're finding artifacts, and whenever that happens in California, you have to make a stop to the development immediately, and you have to get archaeologists in to see what was this and all that. And of course, with the Hachiman and Tongva, they had been saying forever, our people, this was a sacred site for our people. You're not believing us now You have to believe us. Now, the Coastal Commission in recent years has been very adamant about trying to right wrongs of the past, especially when it deals with uh, minority so-called minority communities. So we know Bruce's Beach and Manhattan Beach. That's where uh, beachfront property was basically taken away from a black family. And now you have this case here in Orange County. Again, it's incredible. So is there any idea what they're going to do with this land, the 6.2 acres. I mean, we know that the other two acres that you mentioned, they want to be able to develop it, right? The owners of that land. But what about the other acreage that, that now in the hands of the tribal community? Yeah. So the Hachiman Tongva Land Conservancy, their first task is to secure the place itself because there is fence around it, but people apparently break in, do BMX biking on what the, what's their sacred land. So they're going to make it secure so that no one could come in. Next up, they're going to take out all the non-native vegetation that's there. We're talking about hundreds of years of non-native vegetation brought in by colonizers, for lack of a better term. They're going to take that over. And then after that, we'll see what happens. I mean, this is a place where you had two tribal communities They coexisted with each other there. Do you see any more of these kinds of, I mean, you mentioned the lease down in South County, but what about other leases, other tribal communities wanting to get some some of the land back? You've you've seen this across California as a state over the past, really in the past five years. In Orange County, it's going to be harder because, again, Orange County just wants to develop. I remember in the early 2000s, there was a proposal for, I think it was, 
the Tongva people to be able to run a casino in Garden Grove uh, through this really complex operation. But city officials immediately said, no, this is not going to happen. You folks aren't even federally recognized as a tribe. And in California, of course, you have to be uh, you know, Native American tribe to be able to run casinos. And so what you're going to see now is the Hachiman and Tongva, this is going to inspire them. They now have a piece of their land back. Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the LA Times. Of course, our OC Oracle right here on GLA. Gustavo, thanks. Gracias. That's going to do it for us this evening. Tomorrow on the program, hear from the self-proclaimed grocery goblin who's trying to make it to every food and supermarket in Los Angeles. But why? Why? And what does a grocery goblin even wear? Later in the week, homeschool enrollment, as you recall, skyrocketed during the pandemic. Well, now that we're in better shape pandemic-wise, why have so many L.A. families stuck with it? You can find us online anytime at kcrw.com slash greater L.A. Maybe you have a story idea. Maybe you want to get the podcast. You can get the show, certainly on the go. It's all there, kcrw.com slash GLA, and get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you'll join us online. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, John Meek, Phil Richards, Sue Margulies, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordal all helped put the show together this evening. I'm Steve Chotekas. Thanks for your time. Thanks for that ear. Bye-bye. <laughs>